So hello and welcome to the 18th episode of our podcast, Religion Praxis. We're delighted to have with us Dr. Tobias Kramer, who is a junior research fellow at uh, at Oxford, as extensive research spans across Western societies, exploring the relationship between religion, populism, and right-wing identity politics, with an impressive academic background, including his PhD in politics and international relations from the University of Cambridge, MPP from Harvard Kennedy School, Phil uh, from Cambridge, a BA from Science Paul. Dr. Kramer brings a wealth of expertise to our discussion today. In this episode, we'll delve deeper into his latest book, which I was fortunate to read, um, called uh, The Godless Crusade, Religion, Populism, and the Right-Wing Identity Politics in the West. This is published by Cambridge University Press. Um, so join us uh, for engaging and thought-provoking discussion with Dr. Kramer as we examine the intricate connections between religion, politics, and identity in today's world. Welcome to our podcast, Tobias. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Tariq. I'm really, really glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. So we, we start with, uh, we, we, with a general set of questions that will kind of guide and shape our conversation before going into specifics. So how has the relationship between religion, populism, and right-wing identity politics evolved in recent years? And what are the key factors driving this change? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big argument, so I'll try to keep, the, keep it very short. But basically, um, what has been really interesting over the last few years is that we've been really been seeing um, two main developments in Western societies. On the one hand, really the surge of right-wing populist movements that are in many ways not marginal anymore. I mean, they're winning elections, they're forming governments. Um, so you see that and you see that across uh, many, many Western uh, democracies at the moment. Um, and then on the other hand, and in some ways uh, parallel, if you look at it chronologically, we see uh, the resurgence of references to religion um, especially by these movements. I mean, we all know um, Donald Trump and his uh, very outspoken uh, use of um, references to Christianity, uh, saying in, uh, with the Bible in front of uh, the church during the Black Lives Matter protests uh, and, and really casting himself as the defender of Christian America. Uh, but that is something we also see in, in Europe, uh, which in some ways is perhaps more surprising uh, because it's so much more secular, but um, the, the French Rassemblement National is uh, still um, maintaining its, um, uh, its, its, its big demonstrations um, and marches uh, in the favor of Joan of Arc, the Catholic saint, and really talking about France's Catholic identity. Uh, in Germany, you have um, Pegida or the AFD party um, also uh, carrying oversized crosses uh, at their at their protests um, and really stylizing themselves as the defenders of the Judeo-Christian West, uh, specifically against uh, a perceived uh, onslaught of Islam and their words. And that is really something we can see across the board from the Netherlands to Sweden um, to Italy and Portugal. Uh, so I've really been looking at that. Um, and there's, of course, 
a big temptation. And I think a lot of the literature and what you see um, on the news would suggest that they come together. Uh, they're really just one the same reactionary backlash uh, against secular, liberal um, and multicultural society. Um, but what has been interesting as I did this research was really to find out that the relationship is often much more complicated and that actually um, <clears throat> a key argument that I'm making in the book is that uh, whilst we might think this is a resurgence of, resurgence of religion, um, in many ways this is much more part of secularization, even a secularization of the concept uh, of religious symbols itself. Um, and just to unpack that a bit, you can see that um, if you look uh, to Europe, for instance, if you look at voting behavior, for instance, um, right wing populist parties actually tend to do best among irreligious voters. Um, so um, if you look to, to Germany, um, the AFD on average scores double as well among uh, irreligious voters than they do among Protestants and Catholics. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, a lot of my research has also consisted of conducting interviews uh, with right-wing populist leaders and faith leaders. And it's really interesting that if you um, ask right-wing populist leaders what uh, they actually mean when they talk about Christian identity, they're very open about saying, oh, no, no, this is um, this is not about faith or theology. Uh, this is really um, about, a lot of them even say, that, of course, we're atheists, uh, but this is about uh, defending our civilization and about defending our nation um, and identity against the, the threat of Islam or the external other. In many ways, religion here uh, becomes uh, primarily um, a national identity marker. It becomes quite secular. And in, in some ways, this is uh, really dissociated from uh, Christian practice, Christian faith, and Christian institutions. And people will be quite outspoken about that. So this is basically what I was looking at uh, in the book, like the, the question of what is driving right-wing identity politics, uh, what is driving their references to religion uh, in that context, and then also looking at how faith communities are reacting to that differently in different countries. Um, and then finally, and we can get into that, but also what, what role can actually, on the one hand, faith leaders play uh, in that context, uh, but also policymakers and political parties. So that was really my, uh, my ambition to do that with the book. Yeah, it's an interesting paradox in your research, and, and, and the book uh, looks at the role of Christianity as cultural identity marker in the right-wing populist movements, but there's also this kind of the ambiguity that on the one hand, as you, as you just mentioned, that uh, there are parties which emphasize on, on Christian identity so much, and yet they appeal to irreligious voters. So how do you explain this Explain this in, in terms of the what kind of phenomenon we are dealing with? Yeah. So I think in order to understand that, uh, and this is why this was basically the first big question that I'm trying to look at, is what actually drives right-wing identity politics? What drives uh, right-wing populism? Why are these parties surging at the moment? What is the deeper underlying development that is common to many Western societies? Why is this happening right now in, in so many different countries? Because I, I actually would make the argument that this is not something specific to one or two specific countries. This is what we usually get in the news, but that there's a broader development in Western societies. Um, and basically, uh, my key argument is that, um, and there's not just mine, there's a lot of literature about that, but that we are basically seeing um, reorganization of the Western, like American and Western European social cleavage system. Um, so basically, uh, social cleavages are the main um, 
divides within a society that really uh, shape um, the, the political landscape and the parties that populate it. And historically, we've often said that uh, our cleavage system basically boils down to um, two main cleavages. On the one hand, um, the economic cleavage, so to speak, between workers and capitalists or between open uh, market and a more close protectionist market. Um, and then on the other hand, um, the, the really traditional social uh, and moral cleavage, the religious cleavage between um, secular liberals on the one hand and then more socially, uh, often religiously conservatives on the other hand. So if you uh, want to put in these words, the, the class struggle and the culture wars, the religious culture wars, and this has historically been dominating our societies. Uh, but what we are seeing more and more over the last few years is that um, especially when you look at right-wing populist parties, um, they're really not um, focusing on these issues anymore. They don't really focus on um, uh, the economics. You can see them actually fluctuate between uh, on the, some, you have the Tea Party that is like super pro-free market, etc. But then if you look at Trump's policy, uh, it's much more protectionist. And we can see that in Europe as well. So um, a lot of parties, even the same parties, often fluctuating. And again, on the other hand, it's been really interesting that you can see that also on the social and moral issues, where on the one hand, they would say we are the defenders of um, the Christian West. But then the, you see also many parties, especially Europe, where um, Gerd Wilders will say we are the real defenders of gay rights against um, against Islam, against reactionary religion, or in France, the Front National or the Rassemblement National will say we are the real defenders um, against uh, of laicite, of the separation of church and state, or of women's rights, etc., etc. So even taking up progressive bits. Again, whether you want to buy that and think this is super authentic is, is a different question, but there's a lot of flexibility on that, which really suggests that the key um, policy issue, the core uh, question that right and populism is about is a new social cleavage, a new, um, what I call an identity cleavage um, in our uh, societies that is much less about um, issues like abortion or gay marriage or uh, about uh, taxes and uh, minimum wage than it is about a much more fundamental question of how to define the us and how to define the other in increasingly um, individualized, secularized societies, um, and that um, this cleavage basically divides society into two big camps uh, between, on the one hand, a much more globalist, cosmopolitan uh, idea of identity that focuses on group identities primarily for minorities, but uh, tries to transcend group identities for the majority population. Um, and then on the other hand, a much more communitarian camp that really focuses on traditional forms of identity coming from language, nationality, ethnicity, etc. Um, there's obviously, as I say, I'm not the first one talking about that in uh, Britain. People will know uh, about um, David Goodhart talked about the divide between somewheres and anywheres. Um, and uh, others talk about uh, globalist versus um um uh nationalists um that there, there's a lot of different um different vocabulary for that but really this new divide about identity i think that the core of this uh and this is really what's driving right in populism uh and the question is then how obviously does religion come into that um but as we say in this context it's religion matters much less as a faith it's much more about um 
finding ways of defining the us against the other. It's much more tribalistic uh, in a way. And it's really interesting um, if you then see the references. Um, so as I mentioned, I like I asked one one thing I asked writing populists is like, what does Christian identity mean? It was interesting that when I asked this question in comparison to um, say social democrats or Christian democrats or democrat like in the Democratic Party, like other politicians as well as clergy, they would start talking about theology. They would start talking about the Trinity, the resurrection, the second coming of Christ, whatever. Um, when I asked the same question, writing populist leaders, they would say, they would start talking about history, they would start talking about geography, they would start talking about identity. Um, and really strikingly, uh, almost all of them would also start talking about Islam in their definition of Christianity. They would say, we are Christian because we have a church in the village and not a mosque. We are Christian because we uh, we have Christmas off and we don't celebrate Ramadan. Um, in many ways, we are Christian uh, in some ways, because we aren't Muslim. So it's really this trying to define the other, the external other, um, and ex negativo, then Christianity, or rather Christendom, becomes part of the definition of the us. Yeah, I think in the context of Western Europe, where, in, 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 where right-wing populists consistently underperforming on Christian waters, how do you reconcile the existence of what you call religious vaccination effect with the the high level of support for um, for right wing populists among religious voters in other regions and what is the general yeah. like uh, maybe give us the broader sort of picture distinction between these countries and how the right wing populists perform in the cases which you analyze what is the key differences and key similarities yeah yeah I mean we obviously see as you say a lot of variation. Uh, when we look at the electoral effect uh, or the electoral performance of right-wing populists in different countries. Um, as you said, in Europe, we see this uh, religious vaccination effect uh, in many ways that, that um, uh, right-wing populists actually do best, with, even with the religious rhetoric among uh, more secular um, voters than among uh, religious voters. In the US, of course, you see uh, overwhelming uh, support um, also among the most religious uh, for Donald Trump. There are fantastic books about that. Um, Taking America Back for God for, by Sam Perry, Andrew Whitehead, for instance, will be known to many of your listeners, uh, where it's really the idea that white Christian nationalism uh, is a key driver for um, or key, key driver of Trump of uh, Donald Trump's success. Uh, and I think it's really important to um, to note that, that that is really important and true that Trump did perform so extremely well uh, among not just white evangelicals, but also Catholics and mainline Protestants, both in 2016 and 2020. Um, but this notwithstanding, I would say that even in the United States, um, we can actually... Um, see that there's an important shift on the American right. So in some ways, I would actually argue that rather than this being the resurgence of a religious right um, and, and a strengthening of, I don't know, a, a resurgence of religion and politics, a, a dystopia of Handmaiden's Tale, um, that in many ways we are rather seeing a secularization of what used to be the religious right. So if you look a bit more closely um, at Donald Trump, uh, Trump's performance, especially in 2016, um, during the primaries, we could see that initially uh, he too, there was also uh, somewhat of a, vac a religious vaccination effect because Donald Trump, during the uh, primaries, the Republican primaries, 
primaries actually did best among those Republicans who never attend church, whereas he significantly underperformed among frequent churchgoers. Um, and you can uh, also see uh, that that is something that uh, like religious practice, for instance, in the United States is still um, correlated with often more open attitudes towards race and immigration, which is really interesting. Um, so the question is, of course, like, why do these voters then rally behind Trump so strongly? And now one, like, there's, it's undeniable that he does uh, extremely well also among um, very frequent churchgoers. Um, and I think one key question here is, um, on the one hand, um, that there has been what one interviewee uh, called uh, um, uh, uh, a forced in bargain or transactional bargain between the religious right and the secular right in the United States, that in many ways uh, the, the religious right has said, okay, Donald Trump might not be our man initially. He comes from a secular right. And there's actually, if you look at um, Steve Bannon, Steve, uh, Steve Miller, like all the people who are really the drivers uh, behind Trump initially, um, if you talk to them, if you look more closely into their intellectual um, buildup, it's, it's a much more secular right. In many ways, it's Europeanization uh, of the American right there um, because they, they will talk about um, European uh secular scholars um of of identity politics much more than having influences being influenced by say traditional conservative uh evangelical uh, authors um but what is interesting is that in the united states you had you have some some sort of coalition between this new populist secular right and then the traditional um religious right and i think there are several reasons for that i think a lot of it is structural um, so um, one one explanation was, um, for instance, uh, that I saw in, in Europe as compared to the United States is um, that you have, um, in many ways, the Euro let's put it like this, other way around, uh, the European vaccination effect against the populist right uh, is in many ways not necessarily because Europeans are, I don't know, better Christians or um, just like more open towards immigration. In terms of attitudes, there's actually not much of a difference. Um, but one big factor is whether is that these voters, the Christian voters, have traditionally been associated um, with Christian parties uh, or conservative parties, because they've been, if you think about what I mentioned before, uh, the traditional religious cleavage. Um, so, so they would be associated with conservative parties in France or the Christian Democrats in Europe or historically the GOP in the United States. And one one finding is that um, wherever such an alternative, Christian alternative in the party system is there, then these voters are simply unavailable for the populist right um, to be taken up. So it's really not, um, it, it, it's mainly a question of availability because they're already associated to a party. However, if like in the United States, um, you have this party uh, being taken over uh, by the populist right, then you see a rallying effect. And you can actually see that quite strongly in the United States that uh, in 2016, you had um, evangelicals were the most likely uh, in the uh, Republican coalition to say that they voted Trump primarily because he was a Republican um, and because he wasn't Hillary. So uh, the people who voted for Trump initially because they really loved Trump, that were often more secular voters, whereas the Christian right 
somewhat initially fell uh, behind Trump, uh, fell um, in line with Trump um, because they felt he was the lesser of two evils uh, and he was the Republican nominee. Um, and you can also see this vaccination effect that you had in the primaries disappear there. Um, but I think the second and often really underestimated factor is also the behavior of um, Christian leaders themselves. Um, because what you can see in Europe is that uh, Christian leaders there often have been extremely outspoken uh, against the populist right. Um, and really, uh, again, I'm just bringing the example of Germany because uh, it, it's very, very recent in my mind. Um, but there you will have, for instance, um, the leaders of the Protestant and the Catholic churches uh, really stand up and say, a, um, the populist right is not a Christian alternative. They will stand up and say, um, they demonstrate in front of and protest in front of um, AFD conferences with slogans like, our cross is no swastika, um, and be really outspoken in favor of um, immigrants and refugees. And as a result of that, they're actually creating quite a, they've been able to create quite a powerful social taboo around the uh, the populist right, which plays a big role for this vaccination effect, that just if you are a practicing Christian and you go to church all the time, it often comes with quite high social costs if you are then perceived as being in favor of a populist party. So there's a, a social taboo that is quite powerful um, in, in Germany, but also in France and um, uh, countries like Italy, Sweden, you can see that throughout the board. Um, whereas in the United States, that is not quite uh, the, the, the religious establishment, to put it in these ways, has not been able to uh, create such a social taboo. Um, and the reason for that, I mean, I don't, I don't know whether you want me to go into that right now, um, but it's a bit more um, complicated because it's both a lack of willingness to speak out and a lack of abilities to speak out. Um, because, and I think part of it is actually has something to do also with the structural makeup of the uh, of church-state relations. So in some ways in Europe, it's much easier, for instance, simply to, um, to define who is speaking for Christianity with authority. If you have a pope, that makes things easier. If you have a, uh, a highly institutionalized hierarchical organization, if you have a, an Archbishop of Canterbury, if you have the um, the, the Protestant bishops or the head of the Church of, um, of of Sweden. And these people then say, this is the populist right, is Christian or is not Christian. Um, it's much easier than the United States, where it's a much more uh, bottom-up approach, where it's not clear, there's nobody who simply through their office can authoritatively speak for Christianity just because there's so many different denominations and so many of these denominations are decentralized. Um, so it's much harder to speak with authority for Christianity. Um, so that's a bit about the ability to speak out, um, but then also the willingness to, to speak out is different um, because, because of the much more bottom-up approach in the United States, many faith leaders um, are much more dependent on their uh also financially um on their flock and on donations and if the congregants um are much more sympathetic to the populist right or to some of the ideas then faith leaders won't be speaking out against that um whereas if you have a 
Christ, and that is much more hierarchical. As in Europe, it's much easier uh, for faith leaders to um, to speak their mind uh, and to to uh, assume a role of authority. Is also much more uh, a hierarchical uh, situation in that, and I think that makes it much harder for American faith leaders. One thing that I will stress, though, is that um, privately. Um, I was quite struck in my interviews that in terms of attitudes of what you might call the um, even the evangelical establishment in the United States, they were actually similarly critical of the populist right. It's just that they, as I say, they they were they felt they weren't as able to speak out against that. But we shouldn't. We also shouldn't forget that even even with these constraints, um, a lot of representatives of the uh, American religious establishment actually have spoken out against the populist right. We think of people like Russell Moore, we think of um, Christianity Today. Um, all of these things have historically been seen as really uh, quite authoritative representations of evangelicalism. Uh, but the difference is that um, they have lost influence as a result of speaking out. So I think this power imbalance uh, between a top-down and bottom-up organization of religion plays a role. But I've talked I, a lot now. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it it kind of brings the theme how right-wing populists reconcile their emphasis on, on the one hand, preserving the cultural norms and identity of the ethnic majority with increasingly diverse and multicultural societies in which they operate. And question can kind of come up so about the implications what implications does it have on minority populations and kind of general social cohesion so I would wonder and you discuss here the, in the book and and in number of uh, uh, in in a very nuanced way to what extent does the expectation for minorities to assimilate into the majority's uh, lead culture reflect the power dynamics uh, which are at play within right-wing identity politics? And how might this impact the broader debate around cultural pluralism or national identity in Western societies? Yeah, no, I think it's really, really interesting that you bring that up because um, if you if you look at right-wing identity politics, and this is why I also often, more often actually end up talking about identity politics than populism uh, when I talk about uh, these movements, is that in many ways, um, you can see in the populist right since the 1990s, say, uh, what a lot of scholars have called an identitarian term. So in some ways, they have moved away from traditional biological racism and have embraced something that is more, some scholar, sort of, scholars call it civilizationism, um, and it's much more, uh, or, or, um, um, what is it called? Sorry, I have a blank. Um, Ethnopluralism, ethno that's the word. Ethnopluralism um, that is much less about, as I say, uh, biological racism. It is much more trying to um, adopt the language and um, some of the thinking of left-wing identity politics uh, in terms of thinking about uh, rights, group rights, and um, cultural rights for uh, distinctiveness. But what they are doing is they're trying to really turn around um, the identity politics of the left by saying they're not defending the rights uh, and identity of ethnic minorities, but they're claiming to do that for the majority population. Um, but the key difference is here, of course, that they thereby also make claims for cultural 
hegemony within these countries. Uh, and it is not, and they say, part of the rights of an ethnic majority in order to have their uh, cultural identity is that within their country, they can in some ways dictate what cultural identity means and therefore expect anybody in that country or the minorities within that country to assimilate um, to this idea of national culture, national identity. And I think there's a key difference. So in some ways they're taking a lot of the rhetoric from the from left-wing identity politics in quite an intelligent way because they're using the vocabulary that and it's in many ways um works well because uh, there's a lot of a very strong crisis of identity i think in large parts of the majority population precisely because you have this erosion of traditional forms of identity whether it be religious identity or class identity or regional identity and then um in this crisis of identity they are then confronted with the identity politics uh, of the left in many ways where minorities claim their rights and their group identity uh, in many ways, there are some within um, the majority population uh, who then feel left out uh, because they don't have an identity politics of their own. And it is then right and populists that go into this like fear of identity, crisis of identity, also senses of resentment, feeling uh, like they have to go back uh, to the queue. There's like is it the strangers in their own land, um, and then they try to provide their own form of right-wing identity politics, white identity politics um, that is then used to exclude others uh, and by excluding others create an identity. And maybe last on that is that um, this identity is often not a positive identity. It's often an ex-negative identity. And it's, often, it's, it's thereby also useful to think of right-wing identity politics uh, basically as a triangular worldview between on the one hand, the us, the good, the pure and the homogeneous people. Uh, but this us is not necessarily defined in quite concrete and positive terms, but rather it is um, defined in contrast to a set of two others. On the one hand, you have the liberal corrupted elite, that's the internal other, so this like populist dichotomy. And then on the other hand, you have the external other, um, the, the external external, ethnically or religiously other. And what is interesting is that this external other over the last 20, 30 years has increasingly been defined in religious and more specifically civilizational terms. And there's a really, um, really quite marked increase of the definition of the external other as is Islamic. Uh, especially in Europe, but increasingly also in the United States. So I think uh, people like Jose Casanova have shown that quite strongly, the role of Islamophobia um, in the very definition of um, Western identity in the rhetoric of the populist right, where he would describe that all of a sudden Turks in Germany were no longer Turks, they were Muslims. Moroccans in France were no longer Moroccans, they were Muslims. And it is only given this religious definition of the other as a Muslim, that Christianity then suddenly reappears in the um, as an analogous cultural identity identity marker of the US. But what is important is that um, this is not necessarily a return of religion or religiosity as a matter of faith, uh, but it is really only as a cultural uh, identity marker. And in some ways, it's what um, uh, what some scholars have called Olivier Roy, for instance. It's it's a zombie religion. It's an it's an empty 
signifier that is devoid uh, in many ways of Christian beliefs, practices, and institutions. Um, and in some ways, it's a redefinition uh, of the idea of religion itself. In some ways, it's a secularization of uh, religious labels and um, religious symbols uh, in society, in a society that is much more secular. So perhaps it's also a natural progress uh, uh, pro- process. But I think recognizing that is an important thing. Yeah, I have a few more questions before we finish. One, one would be, given my own research on, on Russia and Ukraine, Georgia, Serbia, and Eastern Europe in general. I wonder if you noticed external influence in how right-wing populists are operating, whether in terms of funding or some alliances with with other external forces, and what kind of alliances are there, uh, if there are any, um, and if there is any funding or clientelistic practices, um, uh, if, if you at all comment on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I haven't looked at that too closely, but I've obviously um, uh, got a bit on that from the sidelines just by conducting over 100 interviews with, with many right and populist leaders. And I think one part that is interesting is because it's part of this shift from even nationalism to civilizationalism. So in many ways, the right and populists you talk to, uh, they don't necessarily talk about France and Netherlands or Germany as much as they talk about Western civilization that needs to be protected. So if you talk to people like Steve Bannon, it's all about Western civilization um, and the clash of civilizations. And that then allows to some extent uh, uh, nationalist international of these movements trying to come together. Um, You had Steve Bannon really trying to bring them together quite structurally um, with... um, Francis had this Academy for the Judeo-Christian West and Frisalti. He had this um, bit set up as the movement and was trying to create a, um, a supranational populist movement um, across different countries. Um, and there were also some links to um, especially Russian um, thinkers and, and donors. Um, I think that is that is true and is, it's important. Um, but I also wouldn't necessarily overestimate it. Um, you could see, um, first of all, this uh, attempt to uh, bring all the populist movements together didn't really work out particularly well um, because the movements just do, in some ways, their own thing and they do remain um, structurally uh, nationalist. They're also, as I mentioned, they, they are unified but they're, by their... Um, opposition to migration, etc., and their right-wing identity politics, but they actually clash on, as I mentioned before, on issues like the economy, they clash on issues like abortion, gay marriage, there's a lot of variation in that, so this project didn't really work. Um, and I would also stress that the, I think, financial uh, part in that isn't that important. I really think that the populist right has been driven much more by the demand side um, in terms of this new cleavage, this new social cleavage of identity that has really uh, created a very fertile breeding ground for right-wing populist movements. And in many ways, right-wing populist movements are not particularly successful political entrepreneurs. Um, in, in many, Very often they, they win in spite of themselves. Uh, so I'm often a bit hesitant to uh, overemphasize um, these influences from, from, say, Russian donors or um, 
uh, uh, or like big organizations that are top down. I, in my experience, that is actually most of the time quite unsuccessful um, and doesn't work particularly well if there isn't already a very strong breeding ground. You can see that with right and populist movements, there is in most countries 20 to 30 percent of the population on average are ready to vote for these movements and you can often see fluctuation uh even one movement being replaced by another but basically catering to that so i would emphasize the demand side more strongly than the supply side yeah it's it's also uh, what i was just wondering when you were talking about external influences are, are there any examples of religious institutions taking a proactive stance against this phenomenon that you described yeah and yeah, what I are these in, examples in Europe, yeah yeah, no, absolutely. I think in Europe, uh, it's very clear, as I mentioned, in Germany, the churches have been very outspoken, uh, very clearly so, um, in saying the AFD is not a Christian party. Uh, the AFD has also reacted quite strongly. They have called their voters and party members to leave the churches, um, to uh, renounce their, their Christian identity. They have said themselves, we are not a Christian party anymore. Uh, the churches are just uh, uh, a migration industry, etc. So I think there it's been very clear, um, clearly established. Um, but you can also see that in countries like um, the Catholic countries in France, there's, for instance, been a paper recently, which I liked, which was titled The Pope Francis Effect, uh, where you could see um, that whenever Pope Francis uh, spoke out in favor of refugees and um, and migration and against uh, right-wing populist rhetoric, you could see the support, only among church-going Catholics, but you could see the support for refugees and migration go up and the support for the Rassemblement National uh, in France go down. So I think this there is still this role uh, authoritative um, uh, faith leaders can play. Um, and I think throughout Europe, it's really quite overwhelmingly. I, I, I'd be much harder pressed to find a country uh, in Western Europe where the churches have been in favor, openly in favor of the populist right um, you... than the other way around. Yeah. Can you identify, and this is yeah. kind of my last question probably, can you identify yeah. any instances where right-wing populist movements in Europe have inadvertently contributed to a resurgence or revitalization of religious practices or beliefs within their respective societies? Was there a kind of an unintended consequence somewhere? I, I'm trying to think, but I actually would rather say no, because in many ways... Um, you will see more of a reaction in uh, they, they have triggered reactions in uh, in faith communities uh, and they might have even contributed to many faith uh, communities in Europe in particular being I know more active in their support of migrants uh, but in many ways I think the populist right is both a symptom and a harbinger of secularization in our societies. So they are a product of secularization to the extent that secularization has contributed to the crisis of identity uh, in large parts of the majority population um, and also to the extent that they have been able to um, use Christian references and uh, Christian symbols um, in a way um, that in some ways contradict the church. So in, in some ways uh, Christian symbols as a result of secularization have become have come up up 
to grasp grasp for uh, in in some way. So yeah. uh, you would have them say um, use traditional theological ideas and say like, oh, love your neighbor is meant geographically. It's all about um, love, love your family, uh, maybe love your love other Germans or other French, but like Syrians, they're really far away. That isn't your neighbor. Um, which I, the most theologians I talk to would say like this is not necessarily mainstream thinking, mm. but because of secularization, the, the churches in many ways have lost that authoritative power uh, and people who are less religiously literate are often more open to such readings of mm. um, or such uses of uh, religious references. So I think in that way, they are a product of secularization and they are harboring of secularization um, to the extent that using Christian references in such ways obviously also creates a counter-reaction um, among those who are opposed to the populist right uh, because many people then identify um, mm. Christian references and Christian symbols with the populist right and you will see a lot of um, people who would identify themselves as left-wing and liberal um, as saying, oh, therefore religion is bad um, because popular right-wing populists are using that and I think for it's been difficult for many faith leaders to make the case and to reclaim uh, Christian symbols and Christian references from that. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't see much of a resurgence of religion. I, I would actually argue uh, we are going ever faster down the way of secularization. Mm. And maybe the concluding remarks would be uh, around the question of how might this affect the future of both religious institutions and political movements. And when I say this, this kind of growing influence of right-wing populism in Europe, and we have this new influx of refugees from Ukraine, one might say they're not the favorite others as compared to the Muslims for the right-wing populists, right, for many reasons. At least in my experience living in Sweden, uh, the Ukrainians were not necessarily conceptualized as the others as opposed to the mm. to, to Syrians uh, in the rhetoric of the Swedish parties party. Um, so um, what, what future effects? Um, we in sociology don't really like futurism, but maybe kind of concluding <laughs> remarks uh, about the, yeah. the, 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 the nature of the game. Yeah, yeah, no, to, to quote a, a famous German uh, football player, predictions are always hard, especially when they refer to the future. Mm. Um, but um, no, I think uh, a lot of these are like, as I mentioned, long-term trends. So I think we will see um, further secularization. Um, we will also see a secularization of the political right. I think in the United States, we will in the medium to long term see uh, we will see the convergence of the uh, of right wing movements. I think across the Atlantic, but not to the extent that the European right, uh, populist right, will become more religious. But I think we will see a secularization of the American right um, in many ways. What I'm less sure about is whether that's necessarily going, whether the secular right is necessarily going to be more tolerant or um, less hostile towards minorities. I think in many ways, we, I wouldn't be entirely sure about that. Um, mm. And the question is, I think in the end, what will other political parties do? Uh, will, for instance, um, progressive parties, liberal parties, will they try to uh, reclaim religious references? I think especially in the United States, it's really interesting. Uh, what people often forget, the most religious demographic in the United States are not white evangelicals, yeah. uh, but African-Americans. 
um, Latinos, minorities, they are the really um, the people who are less, uh, who are more religious and, and less secular. Um, whereas the, the white Christian evangelicals, they're actually becoming less and less religious. There's less and less practice among uh, evangelical white evangelical Christians. So I think one question that uh, progressive parties will have to ask themselves, are we going to buy into um, the right-wing populist uh, claims of religion and right-wing and why it goes together? Or is there maybe also different, more inclusive religious narrative? Um, I think that would be um, one big question. Uh, and the second one, I think, is for the churches. Will they um, will they try to go with um, the populist right because they're paying lip service to religion and try to get something out of it, have a transactional bargain, um, like some might argue has happened in the United States? Or um, in the Orthodox or will world. Or try to reclaim... Or the Orthodox world. I mean, also to some extent, even some would argue that's the case in Poland, that's the case um, in Hungary. I think Eastern Europe is a more complicated bit. Brazil is a is a different issue. Um, it's hard to predict. In Europe, you see some churches stand up to it, but um, especially if these churches and faith communities are becoming increasingly marginal are becoming minorities themselves is then the question will they try to uh, ally with a populist right uh, that is nostalgic or will they perhaps on the contrary um, see themselves as one minority among many uh, minorities and um, become a bit more, more countercultural, but maybe see themselves rather on the side of Jews and Muslims mm. um, or other religious minorities because they're suddenly realizing we are, we are a minority as well. And I think this can produce very different um, political outcomes, but I think all that is really hard to predict. So, Yeah, yes. Well, as, as th thank you so much, Tobias, as we draw this insightful episode of Religion and Praxis podcast uh, to a close. We want to extend our deepest gratitude to Dr. Tobias Kramer for sharing his expertise on the interplay between religion, populism, and right-wing identity politics. We are eager to continue bringing you engaging conversations with leading experts on future episodes of religion in practice. Until then, take care and stay curious. Mm -hmm.